stepping into your house, which is your people, in order to praise you. God, it's easy to drag into our worship experience all the baggage that happened this week, all of the fears that exist in our hearts, even the burdens that we carry for the people that we love. God, but one of the gracious gifts that you give us is that when we worship you among your people on your day, it allows us to be able to tap into a grace that changes everything. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we're here right now, as we unpack your word, that you would do something in us to give us hope, to give our hearts a reminder that you are in control and that you love us. Spirit, we pray that you would lead and take this word and apply it to your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. See, I had to say that like 30 times because y'all still asleep. Good morning. Hey, praise God. So what's one thing you're anticipating in your life right now? What's one thing you're looking forward to? Now, some of y'all, it's the obvious. You like Christmas. It's my favorite season or holiday of the year. Can't wait to open up the gifts, be with my family, kick it. I love Christmas. Now, some of y'all, it's a little different. Christmas ain't necessarily about the gifts for you. For you, you like, I'm looking for this break I'm about to get. I've been grinding all year, working hard. This little three or four days that I'm about to get off for Christmas, I can't wait for this to happen. Now, some people are like, nah, nah, you got to understand, Jeff, next year is a big year. I'm about to get this promotion I've been waiting for. I got this trip planned where we're about to have some fun or something's about to happen. It's about to be amazing. So that's what you anticipate. Now, for me, what am I anticipating? I'm actually anticipating our fourth child being born in June. Lord willing. Hey. Praise God. Now, now here's why. Mine is a little selfish. I just really want to see what a little me looks like again. Like, I love that idea of like, dang, bro, this little being came from me and it looked like me and my wife. I see you, babe. Come on. We there. Now, here's the reality. I was that guy that I got the picture of my wife and I got my picture and put it in that machine to see what the baby looks like. And all them babies look like every other baby. But then I did that because I wanted to see my baby. Now, this was all-time anticipation with our first child. With Trip, like, I was anticipating the, the craziest out of all of them. Like, I'm planning like crazy. I'm like, yo, this is what we're going to do when he's born. We're going to go over here. I'm going to have fun with him. We're going to have an amazing time when this baby's born. I'm anticipating it. I was excited. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she was excited and anticipating too. But for her, she was thinking about more so planning the right things. So, for example, she said, yeah, babe, I know you hype about the baby being born and everything. But make sure you got our labor and delivery bag ready as well. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that, bro. Come on, that's easy. I got that. I'm going to do it. Like, of course, why would I not do that? And then it came to the day of delivery. <laughs> I anticipated it so long. When it was time to go to the hospital, my wife was like, babe, where's the bag at? I'm like, I forgot to pack it. So she over here getting ready to go into labor, and I had to take that one on the chin. Now, why do I bring this up? Anticipation with all the emotions that it creates can either be a blessing or a curse for humanity. It can be one of the most exciting times of our life, or it can be one of the most nerve-wracking ones if we don't steward the time of waiting. This is why Advent season is still relevant for the church today. One of the most anticipated times in all of human history was the coming of the Messiah. 
It was a time where people were waiting for generations for someone to come that would literally change everything in existence. Yet as the Bible shows, that time of anticipation was only a blessing to some. And yet for others, that same time of waiting became an avenue for sin, impatience, and even a rejection of the very hope they anticipated. And this is what we'll explore in the book of Isaiah as we continue through this Advent series. We'll look at a time where people anticipated the arrival of the Messiah and allowed the truths that were prophesied then to impact the way that we live now. So in order to do this, in Isaiah 61 today, we'll see three things that God's people were to anticipate in the advent or coming of Christ. First, we'll see they were to anticipate the king. Second, they were to anticipate his blessings. Third and finally, they were to anticipate his restoration. With that, let's dig in to our text in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations they will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is the word of the Lord. First point, anticipate the king. Before we jump into our text, you have to know the context of the book, Isaiah. Isaiah was wrote or wrote this prophecy around the 8th century BC, and it was meant to foretell a time of God's judgment and also a time of God saving his people. If you remember, Israel was God's chosen people that he made a covenant with to prosper and protect them from all of their enemies. But there were two sides to this covenant. Not only would God bless and protect them, but also Israel had to hold their side as well, which meant not violating his commandments. But as the book of Isaiah shows in its early chapters, Israel failed to keep their end of this agreement. They blasphemed against Yahweh. They made idols and worshiped false gods. They refused to be a light to the nations. And to add to this, they even created these systems of sin that benefited the rich and powerful and at the same time manipulated the most vulnerable of God's people. Now, so you don't think I'm exaggerating about the state of Israel at this time, just listen to these verses that talks about God's people that Isaiah is writing to. It says, the Lord looked among Israel for justice, but instead bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but instead an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no room left for my people. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of my people their right. Woe to those enacting crooked statues and those writing oppressive laws. 
Isaiah makes this point clear. God's people failed to keep their end of the covenant, and therefore judgment was sure to come. But at the same time, God also promised in this very same prophecy of Isaiah that he would not abandon his people because of their sin, but instead he would restore them. Listen to Isaiah 54. It says, for the Lord God has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. I deserted you for a brief moment, but I will take you back with abundant compassion. So how can these two things be true? How would God punish his people for their sin because they failed to keep their covenantal vows and at the same time restore a people who had gone so far from his way? The answer is found in the coming of the king. Look again at verse 1 of Isaiah 61. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The solution to all the problems facing Israel was coming in the form of a king. Matter of fact, the solution for the whole world, according to Isaiah, was coming in the form of the Messiah. This is why everything in our culture and our entertainment can't help but to give this hint of our need for a savior. Just think about the movies that we watch in our entertainment. Remember, early 2000s, The Matrix came out. This movie, all built around the one to save the day. Marvel, I'm a Marvel head. I don't, y'all watch Marvel? We had anybody here? Marvel, remember the Avengers? The whole movie set up. A bad guy's coming and you're waiting for somebody to avenge or save the day. Not even just action movies. Even them corny chick flicks y'all be watching. What happens in them little Hallmark movies? You got a thirsty girl at the beginning of the movie. She desperate. <laughs> She waiting. She's like, I just can't wait to find the right one. He's not here. And what happens? Somebody equally corny, maybe even more corny, comes by the end of the movie and sweeps her off his feet. Why? Our movie can't help it. Everything in our existence points forward to the need that we know in reality we're hoping for someone to save the day. And this is the anticipation of the reality that we find in the book of Isaiah. So what does it mean for the Messianic king to come? It means two things, a king's rulership and a king's declaration. A king's rulership and a king's declaration. First, a king will rule. The messianic king that verse 1 mentions had been prophesied and promised all throughout the Old Testament. The clearest of these prophecies come in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There was a promise that a descendant of King David will reign as Israel's king with a kingdom that would never end. Different than any previous king in Israel's past because this king would be righteous with the spirit of the Lord. In other words, this king wouldn't make the mistake of all the sinful kings before like the rest of Israel had done in their unfaithfulness. This king, however, would be righteous and would lead a kingdom of righteousness. Now, this is where God's people will be in trouble because a righteous king means you can't just live the way that you won't no more. In order to understand what it means to have a righteous king, that means you need to respect his rule and his authority for your life. Now, let me show you why this would be difficult, not just for Israel, but also for us. The king says, this is my kingdom and not yours, therefore you're called to submit. And we hate that word today. Submit? What you mean? I need to submit? Nah, nah, nah. Do you know who I am? Like, I built this. I did this. 
I did this all myself. I made all the money I needed to. I took care of who I needed to. What you mean I need to submit? So we hate the Bible when it talks about submit. You got the obvious one. Wives, submit to your husband. And we hate that verse. But then people are like, oh, but what about submission? It also says church members, if you go to a church, you call to submit to your pastors. But hold on, maybe you outside of that. It also says if you're in a Christian community, your brothers and your sisters, you're called to submit to one another. But we hate that. Because guess what? Everybody's called to submit. The reason you can't submit to the people around you, the people that love you, is because actually you got a problem submitting with the God that made you. And why does that happen? Because you think you got. We think we got. What you mean I got to submit? I'm the one. And what is God like? He's like, beloved, I love you, but I promise you, unless you submit, you will have to deal with the true king of kings becomes problematic. Or when the king says, my people, their allegiance is meant to be to me and my kingdom over any other kingdom in the world. And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, of course. I submit to God's kingdom. But I also, I also belong to the Democrat or Republican Party. I also belong to this ethnic group or to this tribe. I also belong to this clique over here or I'm over here. So, yeah, I, I believe I belong to Jesus' kingdom, but I also got this kingdom. And God is like, okay, but what happens when that kingdom goes against mine? Which one are you going to submit to? Because here's the reality. We know that Jesus' kingdom is ours, but how many times in your life when you're conflicted with that kingdom versus his kingdom, do you submit to the wrong one? As Jesus says in Matthew, you can't serve two masters. Or when the king says, let that relationship go, you know it's not honoring me. Kill it now. What do you say? Are you submitting to the king and say, you know what, yeah, this relationship, I know it's not for my flourishing. I know this person ain't truly good or truly what God wants for me, I'm going to let it go. Or that job that you know you might be compromising some, are you actually letting it go? Are you getting the benefits that is given and forsaking the king that caused you? Beloved, God not only tells us to let things go because he's king, but he also does it because as king, he knows what's actually good for us. So if he tells you to let something go or to go a different direction, because he's king, he knows if it's going to hurt you or if it's going to be for your ultimate flourishing. To anticipate the king's arrival is to anticipate submitting to his rule for your life and not just when it's convenient. Because everybody want to follow God when it's going well for him. If you're getting blessed by it, yeah, yeah, I'll follow him. But what about when it doesn't feel that way in the moment? But also, the king's coming means a declaration for all. It says the king is anointed by the spirit to declare good news. In the time that Isaiah was written, it was normal for a king to bring a message that all were meant to hear and take heed. This is one of the reasons I love the book of Isaiah. The gospel message is all throughout this prophecy. Like, if you just go through Isaiah, it points so much to Jesus that it should be clear who it's talking about. It's no coincidence that the very first passage that Jesus proclaims in his earthly ministry is actually coming from the prophecy of Isaiah. It's Jesus' way of saying that if you want to know what my kingship and my rule is all about, you must listen to the message that I declare. Why? Because this message that Jesus declares won't just change Israel, but the good news he brings will actually bless the entire world. Which brings us to our second point, anticipate the king's blessings. Second point, anticipate his blessings. Not only does the king's arrival bring his rule and his reign to the world, but it also brings gifts for all those who bow the knee or fall in line. 
Let's pick back up at the end of verse 1 to see what these blessings are. It says, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. Isaiah anticipates good news that blesses even the least of those in society. It's so vast that it will actually change the lives of many people affected by brokenness. Therefore, let's look at some of the people that it says will be blessed. First, in verse 1, it says, he was, he was sent to heal the brokenhearted. This is a group of people who are under the weight of their circumstances. It's people who are drained because something in life have snatched away everything that they call peace. Now, you don't need a big imagination to think about things that break hearts. Injustice, sickness, death, abandonment, loneliness, exhaustion, and the list goes on. Just living in a broken world, I promise you, will produce so many opportunities to break hearts. So it should be obvious why the brokenhearted are anticipating good news. I remember one of my cousins got into an accident and ended up having to be rushed to the emergency room. And that shocked my whole family. My family's super close-knit. So when this happened, like, we were all shocked. So he gets to the hospital. My family's waiting there. And while we're at the hospital, a doctor comes out, and he's like, guys, like, I want to let you guys know that um, the young man, he's been unconscious for a while. And because of that, we don't know how much oxygen has went to his brain. He's been unconscious for a while. And what happens is when you have a lot of, a lot of oxygen going to your brain, it ends up, doesn't allow you to actually wake up from this standpoint, but it'll either leave you in a coma or he's a vegetable when he wakes up. So this is the news that we got from the doctor. So they said what we're going to do is we're going to further put him down under, chill his body a little bit to preserve as much of his brain as we can. And then after that, maybe he might wake up, but I'm telling you, if he does, he'll be a vegetable. And it was crazy because my family, like, we broken over this. We like, man, like, how could this happen? Like, we're scared, we're nervous. But there was one person out of all of our family who was the most brokenhearted. It was his mother. It's funny, like, you could just go back. Like, I see it in my mind. Like, his mom, when she heard this, everything in her mind was broken. It's like, it's my son. He's, he's not going to be here no more. Like, you could just see it on her face. So the first day goes by, and we're waiting. No news. Second day goes by. No news. Third day, no news. And this is the time where they're going to take him off the anesthesia that they furthered and say, if he does wake up, hopefully, you know, he comes conscious. So the doctor comes down, the nurse comes down, and they're like, hey, hey, y'all, talk to the mom. He said, I'm going to tell you this now. Like, um, we don't know why this is happening, how this has happened, but he's moving now. Not only is he doing that, like he's listening to our commands, and he's more conscious. He's blinking when we tell him, moving his right feet. Now, like, here's what's crazy. You've seen his mother at the first hearing of good news, everything changed. Think about this. This king to come is literally saying, I'm bringing good news for the brokenhearted. If that can happen on an earthly level, expect how much greater it is from the spiritual king who rules everything. It's the reality. It's nothing like good news for the wounded. The king to come will heal the broken hearts. But the text continues. It also says he'll proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. The king 
will set free all of those who have no hope of freedom outside of his blessings. Just think about our own prison system, those who are locked behind bars, people serving 30, 40, 50 years of life sentences in the back of their mind thinking, yo, my life is basically over. Imagine the good news of freedom. We're not just physical prisoners, but even people who are held captive by spiritual or mental strongholds. Like if you cannot relate or if you don't have proximity to somebody who's been in chains like this, you'll miss just how great the anticipation for good news is. Like people for years who struggle with addictions or brokenness that they cannot shake. Like, let me just say this, like, side note, if you're a Christian and you know somebody that struggles with addiction, somebody who struggles with something that they don't want to struggle with, and you tell them, just stop it. I promise you it ain't that easy. Just stop it. Do better. Beloved, if it was that easy, they would do it. I don't think a lot of us understand unless you struggle with addictions or seeing somebody that you love deal with it, that it literally takes something outside of yourself to break this. There's reality. Though this bondage is real, though this bondage can be either physical, spiritual, or emotional, a king is coming to free the captives. Verse 2 continues and says, He'll proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. The king's arrival will bring a new day of both favor and judgment. This addresses Israel's problem that we mentioned earlier, that they needed to be saved, but they also needed to be judged. Now, Isaiah doesn't mean like one literal year or one literal day of judgment. There's a way greater meaning of that, what theologians called already, but not yet. It's meant to be this specific time where both God's favor and his judgment will coincide. In other words, there was a time coming where there would be a drastic change in the structure of Israel and the entire world. And this is all the things that God's people are anticipating to come. Healing, comfort, freedom, deliverance, and even judgment will be a blessing that will come from the king. If you don't know what I mean by judgment, just think about it. We live in an unjust world, a world that's filled with wickedness. If you've been under the oppression of evil things, I can promise you there's no greater news than justice who's going to deal with the wrong that's in front of you. And this is what God's people are waiting for. And because God keeps his promises like he had time and time again to Israel, he was sure to fulfill his promises that Isaiah lays out. But that leaves the question, how? How will God do this? How would Israel receive these blessings from the king? I mean, even today, how do we partake in the very same blessings that the people then were anticipating? Church, this is the good news of the gospel. This is what we not only get to experience, but the same thing that they look forward to, we look back on and actually walk in now. Remember, all of us are sinners. This is the Old Testament. The Bible says in Genesis, God created mankind perfect, but because of sin, sin came into the world, everything became broken. So therefore, when we think about injustice, we think about broken hearts, we think about suffering, we think about everything that's bad that comes as a result of sin. That was not the way that God created it. God created us, like in the Garden of Eden, to be perfect and to enjoy Him and to love one another. But everything that's wrong with the world right now is because of our sin. But here's the good news of the King. The King comes not only to deal with our sin. Not only does He come in the form of a man to die on the cross for the judgment that we deserve, 
But on that cross, as he takes our judgment, the righteousness and the perfection that he has, he gives to all those who bow knee to him. Beloved, this is the good news of the gospel. This is how at the cross and the coming of the king, we see judgment and at the same time we see salvation. Jesus coming here on the earth deals with the problem of not just Israel, but the entire world. And this is why when he arrives on the scene in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Today, this very same passage in Isaiah 61, today it has begun to be fulfilled in your midst. And also, this is why at the end of verse 3, it says that those who bow the knee to the king, because we've believed the gospel, we will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. The good news of King Jesus is that he not only transforms the world around us, but he also transforms the broken parts of our soul that we had no hope of fixing on our own. That's what the Lord does to all those who are born again. The blessings of the gospel are spiritual because they redeem our souls from the bondage of sin, but the blessings of the gospel are also physical because it reverses everything that is broken as a result of Adam's sin in the garden. This is why even though we saw the beginning of the king's reign, we still anticipate the fullness of these blessings to come in Christ, which leads us to our final point, the anticipation of restoration. Third point, anticipate his restoration. Anticipate his restoration. So God's people anticipated the king, and they also anticipated the king's blessings. And as if that wasn't enough already, they also anticipated his restoration. Let's pick back up at verse 4. It says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So remember, in verses 1 through 3, this is what we learned. It shows that God will not only bring hope to the hopeless, but at the end of verse 3, he will make his people righteous trees that glorify him. Now, this is the way it connects to verse 4. The way God brings restoration to the entire world we live in is by using the very same people to be his agents of restoration. Look at the pronouns in verse 4. They will rebuild. They will restore. They will renew. The agents of restoration isn't the king by himself. However, it's the people that have bowed their knee to the king, been made righteous, that now do the work of the kingdom. Churches, listen to these verses as I go out, as it talks about our involvement or our agency in the kingdom work to be done. Listen, Matthew chapter 16, 9, we'll put it on the screen. It says, Matthew 16, 9, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Colossians 1, 13, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, therefore be reconciled to God. 
Matthew 5, 14 and 16, you are the light of the world, a city built on a hill who cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And if that ain't enough, take the classic Great Commission passage, Matthew, 18, Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and I am with you to the end of the age. Church, listen to this. God didn't save you to sit on your hands. He didn't save you so you could sit there and be like, look, man, I'm going to heaven one day. God saved you for this work. Now, let me be honest. I love the church. I promise you, I do. So much so I signed up to be a pastor, which is one of the ugliest jobs in the world. Only person who probably get bullied as much as we do in people interaction is the call center. So we understand each other. I love the church, but here's my problem with the church a lot of times. We forgot the other side of that phrase, be in the world but not of it. We'll say, yeah, yeah, I don't want to be of the world, but we forgot how to be in it. I don't want to look like the world. I don't want them to influence me, but you forgot how to actually change the world. Do you understand that God did not save you to sit on the sidelines, but he saved you to be an agent of change in a world where other people are longing for hope? We've been given the gift of the gospel that previous generations anticipated. So we cannot sit around and not do the work that God has called us to do. Therefore, let me just leave you with some practical ways that God has called us to be a part of bringing restoration. First, your job isn't just a job. It's your mission. Your job isn't just a job. It's your mission, but you don't understand, Pastor, I'm just an engineer. I'm sitting back out here just on a computer doing little things. Beloved, I promise you, if you think your job is just engineering, you're missing what the Spirit is saying. Or, or, or I don't really do that. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Like, like, that's my job. I stay home with my kids. Beloved, I promise you, if you think all you're doing is staying at home with your kids and that's not a part of the gospel mission, you're not listening to the Spirit. Or I work in the call center. I deal with people who are talking crazy all day. Beloved, listen to me. If God has placed you in that place, he's placed you there for a reason because there's broken people around you. You have a mouth. You have an ability to love. And I promise you, you have the capacity to be a literal agent of restoration to all the people around you because of the gospel working within you. Your job ain't about you. It's about him. But also, your family ain't just for you. And see, I love my kids. I love my wife. All my little funny-looking kids. I love them dearly. But they're not just for me. Do you actually see that your family is actually for the kingdom and not for you? So let me show you what I mean. How often do you open up your doors to people outside of your house? How often are you welcoming people into your family? There's probably people around you who maybe didn't grow up in Christian households, who need to be loved, adopted in your family that you can bring over for dinner. Matter of fact, it's Christmas in just a few weeks. Have you asked somebody who may not have a family to say, come over here and be a part of this? There are single people in your church, single people who don't got a boot thing on Christmas, but they could be out to your uncle and come over and kick it with you. Do you see your family that God has given you to be a blessing to other people and to be an agent of change? Our family ain't just about us. Your city needs revival, and it won't just come from the government. Like, I, people know I love Indianapolis. Like, this is my city. My heart is literally for my city, unless they're facing LeBron James. Yeah, I took that L yesterday, so I'm going to throw that out there. Um, 
but I love my city. Like, and I hear the statistics all the time. Another person murdered over here, poverty over here, the homeless population. And some people hear these negative statistics, and they're like, yeah, yeah, so don't go on the east side then. Don't go over there in Hard Park, over there on the west side. Don't do that. Stay away from over there. But I hear these very same statistics that are negative to some people, and I'm like, nah, God, that's the reason I'm here for that's the reason I signed up for ministry. That's the reason my brothers and sisters in this room are like, you know what? We're going to be the people actually bringing restoration to a city that's broken because we know what it means. Because of our sin and our brokenness, when we look like we didn't have any chance for restoration and hope, what did God do? He sent us his spirit by the way of the gospel to change us. So if he'd done that with us, how can we be selfish and not be agents of change for the broken realities in our city? We can't wait on somebody else to do it. We're called to do it. Someone Northwest, as a church, I promise you, this is why we will never talk about our holy huddles in here. We'll never talk about, hey, y'all, we get y'all here. Let's build up our kingdom, get all the members in here, and let's just praise God. I promise you, praise God, if we get to growing, I'm going to push y'all out there. I would not love you, and our elders would not love you if we stopped working only in here to bring restoration, and we didn't do it in the city that God has called us to be a light to the world. Also, your money ain't just for you, it's for the kingdom. I get it. Some of us be like this, not my bread. <laughs> not mine. You didn't work for this. I did. <laughs> I put this work in. And I get it. I, believe me, I got church hurt as well. I've seen it where churches abuse this idea, and you see the pastor drove, driving around in a Benzo. I drive a Nissan Maxima, FYI, <laughs> and sometimes on his lat legs. But I get it, so we get fearful. But I promise you, do you actually see your money as something for the kingdom? Yes, given to your church, not for the sake of giving it to your church so your church can help the mission. But maybe they didn't even give it to your church. Maybe you see your money with somebody around you and your family that's in need, something in your community. Beloved, if you understand that you you have the spirit in you and the resources that God has given you in the first place, you can use even the money you have for the kingdom. And you don't have to be fearful when you use it that now I ain't going to have enough. Because guess where your money come from? It never came from you in the first place. It came from him who provides all that we need in Christ Jesus. None of his children have ever went without because he always makes sure he provides for them. So you can do this. Church, God has graciously invited us to be a part of his plan restoration. And though we're waiting the fullness of restoration to come, when Jesus returns, we have the opportunity right now to push back the kingdom of darkness by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, we must be careful that our anticipation for the king's plan doesn't become an excuse for laziness. We must be careful that our anticipating the king to come doesn't become an excuse for laziness. We'll say we're waiting for the Lord to do something, when in reality, God has already given us the spirit to do the very things we're praying for. As the old Saint Frederick Douglass said, I prayed for 20 years to the Lord, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. Think about this. God, sometimes it's like, yeah, pray, trust me, commit your heart to me. But sometimes you're praying for something that I've already given you the power for. Are you going to trust me and move? Some of us praying for God to restore our community. But the problem is we're praying with our mind and not praying with our feet. Some of us praying for God to restore our marriages. But we're praying about it with our mouth. But you're not loving your spouse like God has already given you the power to do. We pray, God, I just need you to change and move on the situations. But he's already given you everything you need in Christ to affect change in the places that he called you. 
Church, we must not only pray with our minds and hearts, but allow the power in us to make us pray with our feet and do the work that God has called us. Let me bring this to a close. The Advent season is a reminder that anticipation for the king will not be wasted. The one Isaiah anticipated is the very king that reigns in heaven right now. The beauty of the good news is that the king not only blesses us as his children, but he also uses us to restore the very world that we wait in for his return. And now it's the second coming of Christ that we now anticipate while we work as the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would understand what it means that a king has come, that we would know what it means that we belong to the king of kings, that it would transform not just the way that we live as we live out this gospel message that you've saved us with, but you would also allow us to take this very strength and transform the world around us. God, even as we're hoping, because we still live in this broken world, that you will return soon. As we await and anticipate the second coming, knowing that our king reigns, knowing that our king brings blessings, knowing that our king will restore fully in the second coming. God, let us not become lazy. Let us not become stagnant in our faith. God, let the prayers of our hearts, the things that we know we need help in, be the very things that your spirit allows us to partake in restoration. God, I'm praying for restoration in our community, in our city. God, where there's brokenness, where there's murders, where there's danger, where there's poverty, where there's fatherlessness, where there's motherlessness, where there's no hope around us, God, that you would use your people 